today we're starting a new series. Um, and we're going to stay in this series until Easter. So our last series was only four weeks long. This one's going to be a little bit longer. Um, the last series sort of built on itself. It was helpful if you were here for the whole series or you at least were aware of what we talked about. Um, this one's a little bit different. Uh, it's, each week is kind of standalone. It's linked together by a common goal. And the goal of this series is to connect Jesus to the Old Testament. All right? So that's the goal of each week. Uh, so each week is going to be a, a, a different story, if you will. Um, and it's going to be, this is the way we're going to prepare ourselves for Easter. Um, Easter is really important. <laughs> if you're a Christian, it should be really important. And the, the thing is, is uh, it, it tends to be one of those things that we f- uh, often uh, forget that it's important. We, we don't think about it. We don't often look ahead for it. Um, it, it sneaks up on us. And we sort of miss it coming. But I want to tell you that it's coming. And one of the ways that I'm trying to illustrate that it's coming is like I, on, on the whiteboard in the back of the sanctuary, I, I put the schedule of what we're talking about and you can see the weeks leading up to Easter. So it kind of puts in perspective, Easter's coming. Easter is important because it's when we celebrate you know, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We have reminders all around to help us remember that, right? We have a cross, multiple of them around the sanctuary. We want to remember Easter. Easter's important. Every year, it feels like part of the, the role of the pastor is to, you know, think of a way for us to prepare for Easter. And, uh, and we can't do it the same way every year because you guys would pick up on that eventually, right? Um, and there's some truth to that, but I'm also jesting a bit. But it's also helpful for me to think through different ways to prepare myself for Easter. And so this year, I'm trying to think through why is Easter important? I mean, obviously, death and resurrection of Jesus. But okay, why? Beyond that, why is Easter important? And I want to challenge you to do the same. When you're not here, think about it. Why is Easter important? Why should we be looking forward to it? Because one of the things that we know, and I hope that you guys have realized through the last few years of our time together, has been that the people that Jesus walked with and talked with and taught, they were looking forward to the arrival of a Messiah. And so Easter is important for us because of what I just mentioned but it's also really important to them in the day and age of Jesus because the Messiah came. Part of what this series seeks to do is to look at the Old Testament as sort of telling us there's a Messiah coming. And there were all of these signs showing us, all, all of these, these uh, prophecies and signs and um, 
there were characters and there were um, just metaphors and things that were happening that when we look back on it now, we go, oh yeah, I can see all these similarities. Man, and when I look back on it now, that is cool. But we often miss it because we're not looking for it. I have never been much of a game person. How many people here love to play games? Yeah. See, we should have a game night sometime. I won't come, but you guys should come <laughs> and play some games. Uh, car games, board games, like those things are just a little slow for me most of the time. Look, I just would rather play capture the flag, paintball, dodgeball, something like that, right? That's just more my speed. Um, but I'll be honest, the games, the board games, car games that do capture my attention, those are the ones that like, you know, strategy, uh, make you think, that kind of thing, all right? Um, growing up, I like mystery novels. Who likes mystery novels? Okay. Um, I like detective shows. Detective shows, anybody? Okay. Um, I'm sure that some of you guys have played the game Clue. Yeah? Okay. Some of you guys like to figure out if it's Colonel Mustard in the kitchen with the candlestick, you know, that kind of thing, right? Okay. So the games where you have to really pay attention and you have to like pick up on those little slight clues and a little slight nuances. That's the kind of stuff that I like. I get frustrated if I miss the clues, but I'll tell you, I like it. I like paying attention for those things. That's fun for me. And that's why I want to call this series Clue. Because I feel like this is what we're doing. We're looking at the Bible and we're looking for all those little clues to see if we can put the pieces together and be like, got it. Colonel Mustard with the candle in the kitchen. We nailed it. All right. Um, and so, because I, I do think the Bible's a lot like that. When, when you're aware of it. And, and here's the thing. You have to read it. That's, that is step one. You have to be familiar with it. The more familiar you are with it, the more you read it, the easier it is to catch the clues. The themes and the characters that are there, they look a lot like one another sometimes. And there are practices that look a lot like one another. And there are old stories that look like new stories. And you're like, how can that be a coincidence that this looks like this? And suddenly there was brokenness here and the new story, there's wholeness and healing. And you're like, no way. Did those go together? They go together. Ah, professor, kitchen, candlestick. We did it, right? And it's so cool when you start to put all the things together. And, and, and suddenly, when, when we can do this, I, I do think, by the time we get to Easter, by the time we get to Good Friday, you know, Jesus' sacrifice on Good Friday, his resurrection on, on Sunday, on Easter Sunday, it, it helps us put the pieces together in a new way. It make, makes it more meaningful in a new way. And, and we can start seeing, why was it so important that people from the Old Testament were passing these stories on from generation to generation to generation to generation so that in the time of Jesus, they were going, oh, yeah, he is Messiah. He, look, he just did this and this. He's Messiah. They're putting the pieces together in real time going, do you just see what he did? Do you just see what he said? They're putting the pieces together. We can put the pieces together too, and we have even more 
because in Jesus' time, they didn't even have the New Testament. And now we have the New Testament, and it gives us even more pieces. So I'm excited to try and do something like that with you for the next few weeks. I think it's going to make things really meaningful for us. At least that's my hope. So today what I want to do is I want to start at the beginning. Today we're talking about the last Adam. So we're literally going to the very beginning, uh, to Genesis chapter 2. And that's where we're going to start this morning. Um, So Genesis chapter 2, you can go there if you want, but I'm going to put everything on the screen so you don't feel like you have to go there if you don't want to. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 says this. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now, having formed the first man, God placed him in a garden, and he put that garden that he had made in a place that God called Eden. Now, Eden, this garden that was in Eden, we know it as the Garden of Eden. If you're familiar with the Bible, then you know it as the Garden of Eden. If you're not familiar with the Bible, then I'm telling you about the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was a place that was super pleasing to the eye. It was beautiful. It was gorgeous. It had all these beautiful plants. It was just the most beautiful place you can possibly imagine. It had uh, trees that were teeming with fruit. It was lush, gorgeous. In the middle of the garden, there were two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now go to verse 15 in chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. Verse 17. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now, a couple things to point out there really quick. Um, God's talking to Adam here, or man, right? God is talking to man directly. So that's an important thing to note. Um, God put man in this garden to work it, to take care of it. He gave him one rule, right? Don't eat this one tree. Everything else, it's yours, buddy. One tree. Don't eat that one tree. So then God wants to make man, Adam, a suitable helper. So he makes all kinds of animals and birds and livestock. And he he brings them in front of man and he says, all right, I want you to name them. And so man starts to name all of these animals. But from among all of the birds and animals and livestock, there is no suitable helper that's found for man. So God puts man into a deep sleep. And from man, he makes woman. And they're united as one. Now, elsewhere in Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, 28 actually, uh, God gives man and woman after the creation these instructions. He says, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So, we have a garden. We have a man. We have a woman. The very first of mankind, God has given them the garden to take care of, to rule over, and they're to increase in number, to multiply. They have one rule, one tree not to eat of, but pretty much everything else is fair game, right? That's, that's the setup that we have at the very beginning here. Now, there's three things that I kind of want to point out about Adam, and uh, there's three sort of roles that he's playing. And now, I, I want to be, again, fair. These aren't roles or titles that we see Scripture assigning to him. 
It's more like when we look back at Adam, we can see these are roles that he is playing, okay? So the first one I want to mention is think of Adam as sort of a prophet, okay? So what's a prophet's job? A prophet's job is to mediate God's word. Now, in the Old Testament, if uh, God's people were getting off track, God would call a prophet, and the prophet would talk with God, and, or God would talk to the prophet, I should say it that way, and then the prophet's job was to share God's word with the people to sort of get them back on track, okay? In, in the outset of creation, um, God spoke directly with Adam, right? God gave Adam instructions, and it was Adam's responsibility then to share those instructions or share that word with, I mean, at the time, it would be his wife and eventually his children, right? And so think of Adam as fulfilling a very early, early role of, of prophet, okay? Um, next, think of Adam as priest, okay? Again, these are not roles that I'm saying are in the Bible assigned to him. I'm saying think of these as roles that he's fulfilling. What is the job of priest. The job of a priest is to mediate the presence of God. So in the Old Testament, um, the priest was in charge of the temple. The temple was the place where God would come, the priest would go, and they would interact, and then the priest would come out and sort of mediate God's presence to the people. The garden is sort of this early version of the temple. God comes to the garden and interacts with Adam. This is where Adam is. And so Adam, in a lot of ways, serves as this very early version of a priest. He enters into a covenant with God to take care of the garden, just like a priest would be taking care of the temple. He was to expand the garden by filling it with other image bearers. The priest's job was to also create more priests, to teach them how to be priests, to raise up other priests to take over his job when he could no longer do it. So Adam's job, create, go forth and multiply. Create more image bearers to care for the garden. Now, it didn't happen. Um, he was to rule over the garden. And so in many ways, Adam functions as sort of a first, or the garden functions as this first temple, and Adam is the caretaker for it. Lastly, think of this as, a, as a, a last role that Adam plays, as sort of a servant king, okay? Um, kings mediate God's rule. And that's, we don't, we don't have a king for God's people for hundreds of years, generations and generations and generations after Adam, right? But in the garden, Adam is the one who's in charge. Adam is supposed to be the uh, representative of God in this place, much like the king is to God's people. Adam is given the task of ruling over the garden. Uh, God says that rule over every fish in the sea and the birds in the sky over every living creature that moves on the ground. He is given the task to get you know, dominion over the garden. And so while God is the king of the universe, God has chosen to work through his people that follow him. So Adam, in many ways, is the first, I'll call it, servant king. Because while he is ruling over the garden, he comes in a way to serve it, to take care of it, to tend it. All right? So again, hear me. 
These aren't roles that we have somebody in scripture saying, Adam is a prophet, Adam is a priest, Adam is a king. What I'm saying is when we look back at sort of the way that Adam functions, we can say, man, Adam spoke directly with God and he was responsible to share that word with others. That's a lot like a prophet, right? Um, Adam was in the garden and the garden was the place where God's presence was and that functions a lot like a temple and so Adam really functioned a lot like a priest, you know? And Adam was serving the garden, taking care of it and he had dominion over it. Boy, that functions a lot like a king. So I'm saying it's a lot like these things. Um, So again, these aren't titles we find in scripture. It's just looking at Adam, he functions a lot like these things. Now, if you're familiar with the story of the Bible, you know what happens next. If you're not familiar with the story of the Bible, then you're in for a bit of a a disappointing turn. Remember that Adam was given one no-no by God. He had free reign of everything in the garden except for one tree. And he and Eve ate from that tree. And that disobedience has been called many things by many people over time, but the thing that we can call it that's easiest is to say this is the moment that sin enters the world. We can call it the moment that mankind chose man's way rather than God's way. We can chose it to call, it, call it the moment that um, shalom between peace between God and man was broken. And that brokenness affects humanity and the world in which we live. It doesn't, it's not hard to see the brokenness around it, around us. Now, the Apostle Paul speaks about this. And so if you were to turn to Romans 5, I'll put it on the screen as well. Romans 5, chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 12 says this. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. And then verse 15 says, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man. And then verse 18, consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people. And then verse 19, for just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were all made sinners. And you might be like, geez, Paul, why are you beating a dead horse? I mean, do you have to keep saying it over and over and over? I mean, verse 12, verse 15, verse 18, verse 19, my goodness, we get it. And that's because... Paul is trying to explain something that's a little complicated, and he's trying to make the connection that we're also trying to make this morning. He's making a connection between Adam and Jesus, and we're going to come back to these verses in a couple of minutes. But this next connection that I want to make, I'm actually going to use a video to make it, a video from the Bible Project, which some of you guys will remember, it's Bible Project is is a, a group that we really like, because um, they do a great job at taking really complicated topics and making them simple. And they do it in a format, cartoons, that is fun to watch. And they're going to make a connection about Jesus and Adam and the, the title, Son of Man, which is really important for us to understand before we move on to the next thing. So, just watch the screen. If you read the New Testament, you'll notice that the most common title people use to describe Jesus is the Christ, that is, the Messiah. But surprisingly, Jesus almost never used that word to describe himself. Instead, he called himself the Son of Man. The Son of Man, what does that mean? 
Well, the phrase comes from an important chapter in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Daniel was an Israelite prisoner of war who was forced to live in the empire of Babylon and work for the prideful, violent king who destroyed his home. That sounds horrible. And while he was living and working in Babylon, Daniel had this crazy prophetic dream. You ready for it? I'm ready. He saw four beasts crawling out of a dark sea, hybrid monster-like animals, each scarier than the one before. And the fourth beast is so mutant, there's nothing to compare it to. And it's violent, leaving death and destruction in its wake. What in the world is this about? Well, he's told that these beasts symbolize violent, prideful kings and their empires. Oh, like the one Daniel's enslaved to. Yeah, and these creatures might seem random to you, but these images are developing an important biblical theme. How humans are these remarkable creatures capable of doing great good and horrible evil. How we can behave like animals. Right. Look at the first pages of the Bible. God creates the beasts of the field and humans together, all from the dust. But then the humans are set apart and given a royal task of being God's image. So humans are like the animals, but called to become much more. Yeah, they're to be God's representatives on earth, ruling on his behalf like kings and queens. But keep reading, and the humans are deceived by a beast who says that they could be more than just God's partners. Yeah, that they could rule the world on their own terms, which sounds good to them. But God knows this will be a disaster. And so he expels the humans to the realm of the beasts. The partnership is lost. But God makes a promise that one day a human will be born who won't give in to the beast. Rather, he'll overcome and strike the beast while being struck by it. Okay, so for the rest of the biblical story, we're waiting for that human. But instead, in story after story, we find people acting like beasts. Yeah, like in the next story about Cain, who's jealous and angry at his brother Abel. God warns Cain that he's facing a beastly urge called sin, a dark, mysterious kind of evil that consumes humans. But God says that Cain can rule the beast if he chooses. But he doesn't rule the beast. He lets this urge devour him and he becomes a beast. And then after this, Cain's children spread their animal-like violence and it leads to the founding of a whole civilization known for its beastly pride, the city of Babylon. Okay, Babylon. So fast forward, this is where Daniel is enslaved having this bizarro dream. Exactly. Now, watch what happens next in Daniel's dream. He sees into God's throne room where a court is set up and God condemns the beast to destruction. That's great. And then Daniel sees that there's actually more than one divine throne. Oh, right, the throne that humanity left behind. Right, there hasn't been a human who's able to overcome the beast and rule alongside God until now. Daniel sees a figure called the Son of Man, which means a human. And he rides on a cloud up into God's presence and then sits down on the divine throne to rule the world. The partnership's renewed. Yes, and even more, all humanity worships and serves this son of man alongside God. Oh, worship. So this is no ordinary human. This is like a God human. Exactly. And so now you can see why Jesus of Nazareth, when he came onto the scene centuries later, chose this title, the son of man for himself. He was claiming to be that truly human one on a mission to confront the beast. He was tempted to seize power on the beast's terms. But unlike every human before him, Jesus resisted the urge. And then he went about banishing the beast from people's lives. And he was teaching people how to rule the beast instead of being ruled by it. 
Okay, so how do you rule the beast? Well, Jesus did it by giving up his life. Wait, rule the beast by dying? Yes. When Jesus was on trial in a human courtroom and being condemned to death, he said, from this moment on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at God's right hand and coming on the clouds. But this is the moment he's about to die. Exactly. From one perspective, the cross looks like a beastly torture device, but Jesus viewed it as his throne. And on this throne, he exposed the subhuman nature of our evil by letting it do its worst, and then he overcame it with his divine life and love. Jesus' execution was his exaltation. So Jesus is the first human to overcome the beast. And as a result, he can partner with God to rule the world. And so now Jesus is summoning a new humanity into existence, one that can overcome the beast in the same paradoxical way. To rule the beast by dying. And then by discovering that Jesus' life and power can become our life and power. So we can rule the world as God's partners, but Jesus style, in the power of service, humility, and self-giving love. I can't explain it that quickly, that well. So, thank goodness for videos like that. We see that Adam succumbs to sin, right? He is, though he is the first image bearer, he is not a perfect image bearer. And then every other image bearer that comes along also falls to sin. But Jesus is the son of man we've been waiting for. He's the one who does not succumb to sin. And this sets Jesus apart as the one who was prophesied about, as the one who's been waiting for. But also remember that son of man is a title that means human. Human like Adam, the first human. And Adam, the first human who served as the first prophet, priest, and servant king, but he did it imperfectly, and he did it corruptible. Now, Jesus is the perfect image bearer. Jesus is the uncorruptible version of these things. The prophet brings us the word of God. Now, think about Jesus. Jesus not only brings us the word of God, and explains to us the word of God. But he is the very word of God. He is the image of the unseen God. If we want to know what God would say in any given situation, then we look to the words of Jesus and we have the word of God. If we want to know how God would act or react in any given situation, then we can look to the Gospels and we look at the life of Jesus and now we know how God would react or act in any given situation. For Jesus is the perfect image bearer of God. So he is the perfect prophet mediating God's word. The priest mediates the presence of God. For Adam, he was in charge of the, of the garden, which symbolized the very first temple, if you will, the very first meeting place of God and humanity. 
Jesus is Emmanuel. He is the incarnation. He is God put on flesh. So Jesus says, if you want to know God, then you must know me. If you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. Jesus is the presence of God. A servant king mediates God's rule. In Jesus, we finally see what the kingdom of God looks like. Not just through the parables that Jesus tells about the kingdom of God, like when a woman has a lost coin or when a lost son returns, or faith as small as a mustard seed. We see it when Jesus heals a blind man or when he heals a a bleeding woman. We see it when Jesus extends grace and forgiveness to people that don't deserve it. We see it when he heals a soldier who comes to arrest him or when he washes the feet of one who betrays him. We see what the kingdom of God actually looks like and we see what a true, perfect servant king looks like. See, where Adam fell short as the first son of man, where Adam fell short as an image bearer, In Jesus, we find wholeness and perfection as the complete and total son of man. Adam was the prototype human, but Jesus is the final and last son of man. Are you with me? With this connection, then, you can finish Paul's verses in Romans 5. So if you're familiar with Romans 5, or you turn there in your Bible, you know that I didn't read to you the full verses. Full disclosure, I tricked you. Now I'll read you to the full verses. Verse 12 is the only full verse I gave you. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. Verse 15, but the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Verse 17. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 18, consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. Verse 19, for just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. See, this is the gospel. This is the good news. Gospel is a word that means good news. This is the gospel. That though brokenness entered the world, and we all have brokenness, my friends. Though brokenness is in the world, though brokenness is in us, through one act, wholeness can be yours. And this is why we look forward to Easter. This is why this is our starting place. Because there was an act a long time ago that created brokenness in our relationship between us and God. 
And with one act, it was made whole. One act. Despite all of the image bearers that came along and continued to choose sin. And you would think, didn't it compound? Didn't it get worse? Isn't there just a heap of all kinds? doesn't matter. Because that one act was so powerful. It was so big. It was so huge. Because Jesus is so perfect. One act restored it all. One righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. This is the gospel, and this is what we celebrate. This is what's going to lead us into our time of communion this morning. For if we believe in the name of Jesus, and if we choose to have relationship with him, if we have chosen to be reborn, to have new life in him, we have been made whole through Christ. And, and I agree that communion is, one, a time to be solemn and, yes, remember the sacrifice that was made to achieve our wholeness. But it is also a time of celebration because with that sacrifice was resurrection, and that resurrection means new life for you. You were reborn as well. You were given new birth. You get to rise again in Christ. And that is worth celebrating. The verse I just read said, the act resulted in justification and new life for all people. And I want you to celebrate that. So yes, I want you to remember the sacrifice. But I want you to celebrate the new life this morning as well.